Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Today I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Emily Brown on Life Beyond the Numbers. Emily, you're so welcome. Oh my gosh, Susan, I can't tell you how blessed I feel to be here. I'm so excited to be in your space. It's (laughs) great to have you. And we we had to press the record button because Emily and I would probably have spent our whole hour just chatting (laughs) without the record button being on. So we needed to get it going. And actually, this is only our second conversation ever. Right. Well, verbal. Verbal. That's true. Yes. Because we met on a course and we corresponded back and forth written on that um, for quite a while, actually, for a couple of weeks, probably. We did, but it was, you know, written is so much slower and um, smaller. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's true. So I'm going to call you Emily Ross Brown for my first question, because I read this brilliant blog on your website about why Rosses never quit. So Ross, I gather, is your maiden name. It is. It is. So um, tell me about why Rosses never quit, Emily. I'll tell you, three years ago, well, it was probably more than three years ago. It was in 2013. More like 10 I, years ago. It was like 10 years ago. Yes. <laughs> Nearly. Oh, my gosh. And it was right before Easter. And I had a one-year-old at home. And... I, I had a job, I was a director of membership and communications for one of the top country clubs um, in the United States. One of like 11 that has two clubhouses. It's a large club and I was making a lot of change and I had a lot of purpose there. And I had a real love-hate relationship with my job. And the biggest thing I did there was I socialized and I cultivated these social events for people to get to know one another and interact so that they would continue join or have membership with this club because clubs are all about relationships. I was newly married, newly a parent. I was spending about three or four nights a month out of the house where I did not see my daughter and I did not put her to bed. We had a nanny, we had a cleaning lady, who put all our clothes away. My husband helped with cooking. I really had very little to do other than garden and work. And I came home one day, it was the next morning after I'd been out and I held my daughter and she wouldn't look at me in the face. And I kept saying her name. And every time I said her name, 
her eyes would not meet mine. And I'm getting a little like, I can hear about it. Yeah. yeah, because it was just, she was one and kids will respond to whatever a parent needs. And it was at that moment that I knew I wasn't living life right. And growing up, my father had always, we had a family motto. My, my, my parents were very driven, especially my father. And our family motto was that Ross has never quit. And we, I was always trained or educated, I guess, really to realize that, you know, you work a job and you, if you don't like that job, it doesn't matter. You need a job to survive. My dad grew up on welfare and had exceeded way beyond that when I was a child. You know, I had grown up in a country club. He was a success story. And I just kept thinking, well, Ross has never quit. You just keep doing that job until you figure out what the next path is and you don't leave that job. And the next day, I I had a very cheerful mo- day at work, which was embarrassing is, is you probably well know, and maybe it shouldn't be, but I, I came home and I said to my husband, I said, I quit. You'd already quit. I'd already quit. We, we had conversations over and over again. I knew financially that I could quit, but I also know my husband is of the mindset. You can never have enough. But at the same time, he grew up with a mom who didn't work. And I grew up, my mom didn't work until I reached second grade. And so I knew it was possible to re-enter the work environment, but I also knew that if I rested on the laurel of being a stay-at-home mother, I wouldn't be happy in life. I knew that I had aspirations. I knew that my grandmother had always wanted to be an attorney and that the highest she ended up getting was being the secretary for the mayor of her small town, Indiana, Pennsylvania. And And I knew that as a woman, it was my responsibility to live out a life that I wanted to live in this day and age. That's our responsibility is is women. And I'm the daughter of a feminist. And so I searched. I read a lot. It was very uncomfortable internally. Um, How does your dad feel? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I've disappointed my dad a number of times in my life. (laughs) Oh, no, I'm sure you haven't. (laughs) Oh, I have. I've made him cry. But this, this was not the disappointing. I disappointed my dad when I did things like try out for reality TV shows. Okay. Yeah. You get it. As a kid, I was really concerned with popularity and fitting in and like looking the part and owning it. I went through a lot of transitions in life that made me a much better person. Yeah. So no, my dad respected it. it. My parents are both social workers. Yeah. They know the importance of family. Yeah. So Ross's can quit. No, no, no. (laughs) We have different careers in our lives and a family career is one of many. My dad played football in college. That was his sports career. You know, I had a little, I had an acting career as a kid. I had a piano career as a kid. I have a parenting career as an adult. I have a, you know, I have a writing career. I have a volunteer career. I have a community career. I have a lot of careers. Mm. So I never quit. Mm. I took a moment for pause to Mm. reflect and determine what my priorities were and and find balance. And through that balance, I found jet lag. Mm. 
before we get to the jet lag, let's start a bit with the balance because you began writing blogs yeah. and books. So what was the first writing project you went for? Can you remember? My first official where I felt like I was president of my own company, which was always a goal to have before I was 40, was starting the blog. I, I, that was it. And I started the blog and then every opportunity I had was to write books or stories. And it was all children-based. I was like, who's the girl who started sex and not sex in the city girls, you know, the show girls. Mm-hmm. I don't Anyhow, think so. Mm-hmm. It's a popular American show on HBO, Lena Dunham. Lena Dunham, my friend had gone to college with her at Oberlin. And he said, you know, when Lena Dunham did an assignment, she didn't just do it like half ass. I don't know if I can say that. She didn't do it part of the way. She she went all out and she creates, she has a podcast. She's become very successful. And so that's what I did. I always squirrel away information to learn from it. And so I started, you were supposed to do something with the alphabet. It was for my son's preschool. It was an assignment, but I took it like to a whole nother level because we were in there with professional football players and like some like People who like, you know, would respect, you know, they didn't do that. They didn't put in the effort like that in education, obviously, because that's not their thing. But, but I did. And so I thought, you never know who you might get in front of. So I just, you know, I just pushed my way through and I, I would write like, like Jamie Lee Curtis. I took the alphabet and all these A words. I wrote a short story about A words, but It wasn't just like Apple, it was like algorithm. Because my belief, and this is Jamie Lee Curtis's belief too, when she started writing children's books was that kids can expand their vocabulary much earlier on than than one thinks. My son is an amazing storyteller, you know, and and he's an avid reader. And I didn't do that with my daughter because I wasn't in the same place when I had her, when she was at that age. It was it, it took me a long time to kind of find my voice. So then it was like the teacher had come back and I did a picture book and I had all the kids. I said, you all need to tell me what Miss Doyle means to you. And they all drew pictures. And it's a picture book. And I was fascinated by the book The Little Bird because that was a children's book that my son that that just like it was the style. It was a New York Times bestseller children's book. And so I, I developed this. But Susan, I haven't done anything with this. This stuff is all sitting here and it's not published, but I think it can be published. And my goal is to, so I've spent so many years working on the, the biography of jet lag that I really want to get published. But I know that when I go to a publisher, I have to have a whole slew of things in my pocket. And that's why I started the blog. Yes. Yes. And I wrote what I knew. So I wrote about non-traditional career transitions and I wanted to be a motivating force to others. And because that's who I am, I, I, I am that person on a team and everybody's like, oh, it's never going to happen. And I'm like, it is going to happen. 
And, and I'm recognized by my peers as a change maker. And so I play guitar because I'm preparing to be on the late, late show or and talk about my book and I'm going to be able to play guitar. Now, has that happened yet? No, but I'm preparing. Brilliant. And I love that you're just not writing a book, but you're also practicing the guitar so you can do both. <laughs> well, and I also want the book to be a little bit like a symphony. And, and so I've been studying the structure of music. And I also used to cover bands. Like that was one of my writing jobs when I was younger. And with spinrecords.com, which was owned by Ice-T, and who's a rapper in, in America. And, and, and so I, you know, that's just how I do it. Wow. Fascinating. I think somebody should study your brain. <laughs> I think there's so much going on there. That sounds amazing. But jet lag. Why jet lag? So, geez. Well, so why jet lag? I grew up with a family myth about jet lag. We're Italian. My, my father's Italian. 100% and we would sit around the the dinner table and ch- just like chat and he would always tell the story of my foster brother who the summer of 1971 was kidnapped and traveled nonstop intercontinentally for about 4 months and then his grandmother suddenly died during the journeys in a luxury hotel in Amsterdam now This was the story I grew up with, and I always saw it from his lens, not the lens of jet lag, because I never disbelieved that this story was not true, right? Mm. I never looked it up. Whenever my friends questioned it, because, you know, I mean, his life, it's sort of like, how could somebody who lives this amazing life like that end up being a truck driver? Was how I knew everybody looked at it. And so it had all these different iterations of kind of fable um, storytelling devices to it. Like it was true, but it was true. Like don't judge a book by the cover was sort of how I always played it. And wealth doesn't bring happiness. So this story just kind of like, it was always something that was brought up. And then about seven years ago, I decided I was going to write his story. I knew I wanted to do something. When I was the director of college admissions, I loved it because I always thought maybe this isn't exactly what I want to do, but I love all the names and the stories because I interacted with like, I don't know, up to 300 different people in a day. Well, actually, probably on, on, on some occasions it would be over 600 because I'd be managing events, but I would get, I would call people, I had to call people. I may not have interacted with all 300. Maybe I interacted with 60 on a good day, but I interacted with a lot of people. And so I thought, oh, they're going to give me ideas of characters. And they, and everything in my life has, you know, working for an elite country club, like, believe you me, I have a lot of characters roaming around in my head. And that's how my brain always works. Like I'd sit there being bored. Like I lived at the beach and I 
sat on the boardwalk watching people pass by and I create stories for everybody who I saw pass by me. I mean, that's just how my brain works. And so I started researching this story and man, I mean, this was like before the internet and Sarah Krasnoff was all over the place. I mean, grandmother, the grandmother, every time anybody wrote about jet lag, there was my foster brother and his flying granny. Wow. A crime for love. I mean, it was in Scotland. It was in Arkansas. It was in the, I mean, obviously it was in the Netherlands. It it was carried by the Associated Press. It was in the New York Times. It was all over the world. Uh, Well, all over maybe this hemisphere. Yeah. But it was big. It was in Playboy. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) and I didn't realize how broad a reach this story had. And then I started wondering, could somebody, so Paul Virilio, who was this famous French philosopher who died, I think last year, maybe the year before, he dedicated a book to Sarah Krasnoff in, the, in 1977. Wow. In 1994, around about Liz Diller, who's the woman who created the Highline in New York City. She's been named Time Magazine's one of top 100 most influential women over and over and over again. I think three years. These people had written his story. And then Pico Ayer, who's a famous travel writer, he focuses now mostly on Japan. He'd also written about it. And it was in Time Magazine, like recently, you know? And I'm like, huh, nobody's ever asked my brother's side of the story. So I talked to my brother and he said, oh, yeah, I get calls all the time. I just don't answer them. And, and obviously Sarah was dead. So they weren't getting her side of the story either. So whose story were they writing? Hmm. Their own. And then I got really excited about that concept. Right. So where so I'm looking, I start studying. It's um, the calculus of storytelling almost. So I start looking at kind of like how you discover the arc of a story. And then I compared it to math and I'm looking at like, how do you fill up? You can fill up the arc or you can do it from top down, right? So there's two different types of calculus and Dan Brown covered this in one of his books that became very famous. The one with the Da Vinci Code, the other one. Oh, the Da Vinci Code. Okay. In the Da Vinci Code. So there were the Catholics who believed in self-flagellation, like self-torture for moving yourself forward. And then there was the other school of thought. And I think those were Jesuits. I think it was the Jesuati versus the Jesuit, I think are the two. I wrote a blog about this. One was Opus Dei, weren't they? Or yes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So it was... Anyhow, they created math. They, they created calculus. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is a perfect, this story is a perfect example of which math you choose to decipher the truth. I have not blogged about this. I, I'm remembering now, I, I have a blog about it and I should get it up. I'm co-writing this book with my mother and my mathematical scientific examination is not, it's not in line with the style of our book. So when you write a book, you have to write 
to figure out your voice. And so these were things, and like I told you earlier, science makes me creative, physics especially. And so, which is odd, how am I connected to jet lag and physics? And it wasn't something that mathematically made sense to me in school. And so, so anyhow, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure where I'm going with this. Um, so did your brother remember everything, Emily? How old was your brother or your foster brother at the time? Right. And it's okay to call him my brother because okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't believe, yeah. I don't believe in like, I'm, I'm not one of those people who believes in like drawing lines in the sand. Yeah. Cool. Um, but yeah, so he was 14 and he was, I mean, he became a rock star. He was written about in Playboy. He inherited all this money after she died. He'd rent Lear jets. He'd buy cars. Like he had this really luxurious, amazing life after that. He was interviewed for a pop-up magazine production, which is a live magazine. It's kind of Zen Buddhist. It just sort of disappears by John Muallam, who's a New York Times writer. And John wrote about Mitch's jet lag story. My, my brother's name is Mitch. And I said to him, I said, you know, you, this seems so easy to you, all these questions you're asking him. I said, it took me like four years to get him to put everything into place. I I did so many hours of interviews and then I had to listen to them. I would fly out to California or wherever he was living and also out to Cleveland. And I would interview him for a weekend, kind of intensive kind of stressful. These are really dark memories for him. Really dark time. He never talked about the story because his father was alive. His jet lag goes in with family dynamics. I don't want to talk too much about that just because I have to worry about litigious things. It was honor to his father to never talk about it. And his father died And I knew that when his father died, Pandora's box opened. And so you're now with your mom telling his story. Right. Because he has a ninth grade education. He went to boarding school, but he has a ninth grade education. He is an amazing storyteller. He is a very smart man. And, but he cannot communicate in written word what he wants to say. Mm. And and I'm the one with the communications degree. And, and also it brings another thing, and this is kind of where storytelling is really exciting world right now. I listened to Sean Coyne of the Story Grid podcast about writing, and there's a whole nother level of storytelling. We've been in this very kind of binary, black or white form of storytelling, as you know, and the world And again, this fell into my balance thing, which was why I started my blog, was I wanted to see a more 360 degree representation of storytelling. And that was why we were writing our book. And so we started writing it. And we had a writing coach at the time, Margaret, and she was amazing. And and she was giving us ideas of how to write. And we said, we want to have all these voices. And she said, well, you really can't have too many voices. And I thought, well, I understand, but I loved the Canterbury Tales and I think you can have a lot of voice. And so I'm starting to see the the literary world catch up. Mm. 
with this philosophy and Sean Coyne is like, I, I haven't listened to his latest um, podcast, but I took a seminar with him during COVID and he was like, and story grid 2.0 is the next iteration of telling a broader tell including more voices and that and that's what we wanted to do but we've been wanting to do it for seven years and so it's sort of like this space to to be me and you and I have talked about this for before that platform is like becoming available yeah and acceptable yeah because it wasn't right (laughs) and so when you say lots of voices, Emily, whose voices are you talking about? Well, so my mother writes her voice in this story. She's a foster mom. She's the one who took the risk. And, you know, she was, she would have been like 12 had she actually birthed him. Oh, whoa. So she's more like a sister. Well, yeah, which, so yeah, so which is technically possible. Right. Like, I mean, especially if you look in certain socioeconomic groups and and cultures, but in America, especially that's like, ooh, that's a no, no. Right. Like we know you've you've been wrong, (laughs) which anyhow brings in the whole abortion debate. Right. Like this is, whoa, you need to show what you've done wrong. As opposed to where abuse, normal abuse, something that can easily be hidden behind your clothes because you hit people on the back or you hit, you know. So anyhow, I obviously my book focuses on these topics, which is why I'm bringing them up. So my mom is one voice and then I write the other three voices. So I write the deceased grandmother who's a ghost who can see beyond time. And obviously it's a little bit of me, right? Because... I have this odd thing where I can see beyond time and sounds like you have, I know you have it a little bit too. We all have it in different ways. And so, so, so I've got that voice. I write the voice of my brother. I write Mitch. It's all approved by him. Some memories he can't access. I'll give you an example. Like he's colorblind Mm -hmm. and, and we all know what happened when he was found to be colorblind. Nobody believed him. It was his fault. You know, there's something wrong with you. He was abused when that happened. And so, but he, I'm not going to force him to remember that. My book's not about reliving abuse, like a Stephen King novel. Like I can't even, I can't even, it's very difficult for me to watch horror, read horror, it's just, I try, it messes with my emotions too much. I don't like it. I feel very depressed when I do that. And so I'm trying to tell the story of abuse a little differently. I know what has happened and I go in as deep creatively, I guess, so to speak, as he's willing for me to go to Mm -hmm. tell that. That's where I do a little parallel research to understand that. And it's working beautifully. It's working really well. And, and I think that's also something that happens in abused children is they, they create a sense of, a, in a sense, a false reality. As protection. Yeah. 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 As a coping mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that you talk about is that jet lag occurs outside of travel. Exactly. And this is where my voice comes in. I'm the fourth voice. 
And it's been very hard to find my voice. And the thing is, is that jet lag, and again, it's sort of like getting ahead of yourself when society hasn't caught up, excuse me, getting ahead of yourself when society hasn't caught up or, or socially people haven't caught up. Like maybe like you were able to adapt a new system faster than other people. Emotionally, you're able to process emotions because you're more reflective or you live in an environment that encourages reflectivity or physicality, your body goes in tune with your emotions. And so if you're able to be a more physical person, which I naturally am, and I think the piano playing helps with that, learning appreciation for nature, all those things, and they all connect to jet lag, don't they? How? Well, sunlight, emotion. So when I first started researching this, I found baseball players are the ones who travel the most of any sports team because they play so many games in a season and they're constantly going back and forth. Well, there used to be all these articles about baseball players who would get so angry on the planes, like physically angry because they're getting their anger out on the ball field. Well, they now have private jets so that nobody can see them get angry. (laughs) Right. So, but they're still getting angry. It's just now it's in private. That's right. And that's what I want to prevent against. Right. And so that's why I want to have this conversation. So, so I do feel like there's all these levels to it, societal and social. Those are things that you automatically see when you're traveling, you know, societally, the air, airports, the air, it's one place where every, you're forced to interact with everybody in a different realm of life. And that's like the weirdest, like that's what hospitality is because it falls under the hospitality industry. And I mean, that's why as a director of admissions or a director of membership and communications, I was interacting with all different. I was actually interacting with billionaires, people who owned the football teams, like major business owners. And I was also interacting with the Latino guy who's looking at himself in the mirror and essentially saying, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I can get through today. I mean, it's just like, there's so much, there's access to everybody. And that's what airport, airplane travel That's the environment it places us in. I know you talked about COVID as well, Emily, and the jet lag associated with COVID that we're we're still, I suppose, coming out of. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you look at COVID, we've been forced out out of society, out of mass social environments, We've really had to focus on our own food, right? Because we had didn't have access to restaurants as much. We had to focus on, you know, finding our own fun, inventing our own worlds. And if you don't have a good, good imagination, you're just watching TV and playing video games all the time. So all those inputs are going into your body, especially the food. In the environments and the temperatures, 
the air quality, all of those things are going, the light quality, all of those things are going into your body and like reorganizing everything. It's a huge circadian reset, a huge organ reset of your entire, it's not just your internal, it's your external, like it's, you know, every level of your being was altered and the, the human interaction wasn't there. Think how many people died from a lack of human interaction. I don't, I, I should look up that statistic, but. But even I, I remember like when going back into crowds for the first time, like actually interacting with more than the supermarket or whatever, being in a group of people was exhausting. And somebody said to me, it's like having a social hangover. But actually what you're saying now is I can see more the connection to how you feel with jet lag because there was a disorientation to it. I like, am I in the right space? How did I get here? Oh my God, Susan, what about, because our brains like figure out, like we're drawing maps all the time of our environment, right? Like phantom seeing things because we're not used to being in a world that's so simplistic. And then all of a sudden you think something's there that's not, or I mean, it, I, in, in the nausea, you know, your endocrine and your autonomic nervous system are both connected to jet lag in the pituitary gland. Like you kind of have one of your major circadian rhythm locators in there. And, and when you're not practicing these things, and when you're not being reinforced, it's very difficult for you to respond the way you want to respond, right? Isn't that being human? You being an animal is you, I'm thinking it through all these kid terms, which I don't think your listeners are going to want to hear, but you have very animalistic, like, you know, you want to yell at somebody or you want to run and hide or whatever. And when you don't have access to practicing like evolved human existence, And that's why I compared it to the, the Will Smith slap on that blog. It was like, he, I mean, that man, he's very successful, right? He's kept himself composed for decades, (laughs) probably a lifetime. I mean, like, man. And, and then all of a sudden, Chris Rock says something about his wife who he has reconnected with. In this very, because he just wrote a memoir, which we all know is all about reflecting. And he's like saying, you know, their open relationship thing is like this really heavy thing that wears on him, even though I think I know he participates in it. He grew up Christian, like it's not the same environment is what he would like maybe make sense of, you know, it's a new concept for him, which I'm not condoning or accepting. It just is right? We're all just who we are. And that wouldn't be another lens for me to look at if I was going to say something about it. But he, so when Chris Rock masculinated his wife (laughs) and who knows what the relationship between Jada Pinkett Smith and Chris Rock has ever been, I don't know, but, and then he has this Freudian slip, take my wife out of your mouth, which is very sexual. And, and I'm thinking, this is COVID. 
This is jet lag of COVID. His brain has been altered to not be on this consistent path. And this is the great part about travel, right? It enables us to unalter our brain to create new connections. There's um, a system in the body that actually, essentially, I'm not saying it in the right scientific terms, it kind of blows up and then rebuilds itself. <laughs> like during jet lag, like this is, this is the stuff that's going on in your body. Well, it, it's, it's happening on all these different levels out in the world. And what I was thinking there while you were talking is, in a way, it was almost like Will Smith was in a virtual reality, where if at being at home for so long, if he'd been watching this on a video game or whatever, he could have just acted out and done what he wanted. And he's now transposed or flown into the Oscars, which is real life. But yet he hasn't made that leap from the virtual into real. And and the other thing is, it's not just, yes, there's that. And then there's the other thing, which is this reinforcement of that comfortable virtual life that he was existing in and the adaptation. Because movie stars, come on, there were not Oscars. This is a newer phenomenon. So people were all evolutionary and we are our families. We are our past. We can't say, which is why, you know, I said my grandmother, I have to live out this life because I know this about my grandmother and it goes further back. And so, yes, it's a time warp. It's a jet lag time warp. So jet lag as a phenomenon, I'm sure most people listening to this have experienced it at some point. And I know I certainly experienced it working because I traveled a lot with work and had to show up and turn up and and be on, so to speak, even if it was the middle of the night for me. And I guess if you think about other situations that are similar, you can sort of see how how there's the jet lag extends beyond the plane, like you're saying. But we just don't have the language for it. Yeah. It like you wrote something to me and I don't know if I wrote the word or you wrote the word and it was situational jet lag. And I thought, yeah, that's a real, that's it. Like you just, maybe, I I don't know how it happened, but you get it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I can relate to when you're so tired and deprived of sleep because that's, I guess effectively that's what's happening. You've become sleep deprived and that causes all sorts of complications to your system working correctly and your nervous system, but also just your mood, which I guess they're all related anyway, but it's so easy to not feel like yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Chronobiotypes, which is, you know, you're, we're looking at like how, what, how much sleep people need. And there's a lot of really interesting sleep data out there. And there's some really cool stuff going on right now that they're researching. And yeah. So does jet lag kill you? Can jet lag really kill you? You know, so weirdest thing. So this morning I ran into my neighbor, who's a scientist, a PhD, and she was like, she didn't realize that I studied jet lag because I don't talk about my stuff. And she goes, oh yeah, we used to take the SCN out of, out of mice. That's the nerve that's in your brain near the pituitary gland that controls your circadian rhythm, which essentially, and they use it because mice are 
they, they were studying sleep on mice. And I was like, yeah, I was like, but you can't die from a lack of light. She's like, no, because they did all these experiments on mice to see like what happens. Cause that's the way that you're, that the light processes through. I hear so much about light and jet lag and the two are related, but the lack of light is not the thing that's killing you because not everybody gets jet lag. And I looked at an animal study when I was researching daylight savings time and like there's a high percentage of animals that are nocturnal. And when I was researching the biochronotypes, the sleep patterns and people, there's people who still, you know, wake up like in the middle ages, I guess, or before like the, the era of Jane Austen, you know, when they'd have second night, there's still people who have those schedules, they're shift workers, you know, so it, it changes your body, it can change your fat levels and you have worse fat and all kinds of, but the light is not the thing that's killing you. The the movement, I don't think is the thing I, that's not the thing that's killing you either. I, I really think it's the lack of balance. And I think when we look at cultures over and over again, it's the lack of balance that's really what's what gets them, like the Mayans. Anyhow, I don't know. That's a whole nother conversation, probably. Yeah, and I, I'm just trying to think back to work and travel. And I guess... And I'm obviously just hypothesizing, but if you're not finding, refinding balance somehow, if you're not taking time to recover, then how do you know what's the right way to be even? <laughs> you know, you're just constantly on this like treadmill of waking up in different places, in different time zones and almost ignoring it. But your body's not really keeping up with that. Something's got to give. Right. So like, that was so fascinating about your comment about jet lag and that you, it's hard to wait. It's the waking up, but like, I don't know. I, I, I just think this, I haven't, I, I, these are things I need to continue researching and, and hypothesizing and talking to people about. So what's the hope then for this book? And this, this research, Emily, what, what are you tr- hoping to bring to the world other than, because I know obviously it's about the story that hasn't been told, but there's right. so much more going on. Yeah, I feel like our book is a real life mythology, the kind that Joseph Campbell is looking for of the right way to live in a jet lagged world. And I think it's, it brings a lot of like peace and calm and, you know, getting up every day is quite an accomplishment, isn't it? And I just think we need to give ourselves a big giant pat on the back every day because you don't know what somebody's going through. We just don't know. And I want to give people hope. I want people to feel good about themselves. I want people to realize tomorrow is always a new day. There's always room for reinvention. So, yeah. Hmm. 
And I'm just thinking there about the loss of time, because sometimes that's what jet lag is as well. Well, going in one direction, you're losing time effectively. And are we losing time in our lives by not feeling good? Hmm. I love that. Because <laughs> we can do so much more when we feel balanced. And even though we need imbalance to grow, because you're not really going to always grow when you're balanced in the comfort zone, whatever you want to say, but constantly being out of some sort of habitual routine balance can't be good for us either. Yeah. Mm-mm. And 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 it changes our perception of what is good for us, right? And and that's why when you're jet lagged, you make bad decisions. You almost write somebody a check for ten million dollars as opposed to ten thousand, right? Like hopefully it would never cash. <laughs> I know, right? You never know. Depends who you are. And, and so, I mean, I just think like there's. And who are the ones who are the most jet lagged? The ones who oftentimes have the most to lose, or at least they think they do. Jet lag is one of those lenses that allows access to seemingly academic information to the masses. I wouldn't say it's not to, to seemingly unaccessible information because academic information is so often unaccessible to the masses. And I digestible then. Right. And, and, and so this book, is, it's meant to be an easy way to digest heavy information. And, and all you need to do is read and it changes your mindset. And I've had so many people, you know, read the book and they start thinking differently. Wow. Amazing. When are we going to be able to read it? Oh my gosh. Well, we're, that's the worst part. So we are all in the process of, of connecting with literary agents. So we're not there yet. We're working on it. It's sort of like having a baby. You keep thinking it's going to happen and it doesn't happen, but it's going to happen. So that's where my mom and I are right now. But anyone that's interested in reading some of your writing, they can access that already. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you want to start thinking differently, check out the blog. If you want to start seeing the world through jet lag and seeing how other people are interpreting it, check out the jetlagprojectyoutube.com or or the Jetlag Project YouTube channel. And yes, support the book so that we can get the support we need from publishers. And we have some heavy heavy hitters on our side. So we feel confident that it's not gonna stop here. We think it has some serious legs. We think it's an important conversation for the world. Amazing. And if people have jet lag stories, would you like to hear from them? Oh my gosh, I would love to hear from people with jet lag stories. I have a survey. People could email me at thejetlagproject at gmail.com. They can check out my website, emilybrownwriter.com and um, register to complete the survey. And then we could do an interview or submit information that they want to share. I We're going to change the world together. It doesn't happen one person. It really doesn't, does it? You need, we need help to make change. We need help. 
We sure do. We sure do. Emily, thank you so much for your time today. This was quite an extraordinary conversation. Oh my gosh, Susan, you're welcome, but thank you. I mean, you get my mind moving in all wonderful directions. So I like it when you talk more though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did my first solo episode, Emily, that went out last week. I heard a little bit of it and I can't wait to listen to more of it. I love that you did your first solo. How was it? It was great. I felt like, you know what, I've done, I've overcome, I wouldn't say overcome, but I achieved something that was in my way. I, I managed to like untangle a bit of a mess that got me to just say what was on my mind without overthinking it perhaps is a, is a way of putting it and and then once it was done and it went out I wanted feedback I wanted to hear from people uh, well which, I better listen to it today. <laughs> no but that came and once that came then I relaxed into it and went you know what it's done it's okay it actually doesn't matter what people think you're right and you're the one who first told me that <laughs> so I took my own advice Emily Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard. It's so hard to go through life like that, but you're, but that's, that is what it's all about. Yeah. And it's stepping stones. You know, we talked about that before we went on air, how things start coming into your life that are helping you along the way. And, and that's what I had when I look back at the last 10, 15 episodes to getting to my solo, they were stepping stones to help me get there. I just didn't know it at the time. Well, I feel like you are a huge stepping stone for me and have it. And we're going to get there when we need to get there. And as long as we do something every day that focuses us on that journey, which I do and I know you do, uh, that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. Consistency is everything. It is. And consistency doesn't have to be as boring as eating the same thing every day. I think that's the thing that we all get bogged down with, that consistency means you have to focus on the same concepts maybe every day, but it doesn't have to be that boring. No, and practice is everything. Change never happens overnight. We never become amazing at something just like that. We have to work at it. And that's what it's about, working at it. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours. And, and if you do the Laura Vanderham kind of stuff and you, you figure out what your, what those hours are, I mean, it's, you can do, you can do it. So can you. (laughs) (laughs) Emily, thank you so much again. And uh, I'm sure we'll have another conversation. All right. Sounds good, Susan. Great talking to you. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from, or questions for me, 
please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.